Good evening, everyone. You know, uh, it's been so long since I've preached that now when I get up to preach, I get so nervous, <laughs> so nervous. But, you know, thanks be that we have pew packers because those young folks lifted, all, lifted us right on up to the throne room, didn't they? <laughs> uh, as Sir Williams mentioned, my name is David Lopez. I am college minister here at Odom Lane. And I guess it would, it would be good for us to start with this. I really appreciate the opportunity to minister to that special age group, that 18 to 25. And, and if you're in that age group, I would invite you to, to participate with us in our college ministry. We're studying Christians and race relations, which I think is a very interesting and needed topic at this time, seeing how Christians ought to approach these various topics. That said, I want to thank you for the opportunity to minister here. And thank you for the opportunity to share a message with you, the, with, with you this evening. As you can probably see from this, if you've read the book, uh, Dr. Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages, uh, in that book, there are two basic ideas that Dr. Chapman has. One is that in his book, The Five Love Languages, Chapman believes that people give and receive love in different ways or in different love languages. And he outlines five, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, receiving gifts, and physical touch. There's another idea that he presents in this book that goes along with this first one. And it is that couples rarely share the same love language. And what this means is that at times, love can get lost in translation. And according to Chapman, it is always better to learn so as to understand, so as to speak and communicate another person's love language so that they understand that you love them and that you speak the language that most hits their heart, if you will. That said, our lesson this evening is going to be about God's five love languages, and I hope that it, hit home, that it hits home with you and it's something that you can take with you for the remainder of your Christian walk. God has five love languages, and the first one is quality life. Now, in Chapman's book, he calls this quality time. And what does he mean by quality time? Well, he means a little bit more than just sitting around the house together. And he means a little bit more than uh, going out to dinner and then being on our phones the whole time. He mean, <laughs> it, it, when, it look, when, when he considers quality time, it's really less about what you do and where you go. And it's more about how you do what you do together and why you do what you do together. You're trying to build a special moment, if you will. You're trying to enjoy the time. Maybe talk about hardships, laugh, uh, talk about dreams and hopes, talk about life. This is what he means by quality time. Well, when it comes to God, God has something called quality time. But I think it would be more appropriate to say quality life because God wants you to have quality life. And what that means is he wants you to always be in a state of quality time with him. I think Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 illustrates that for us. And it's interesting because in Deuteronomy 6, we need to understand what's happening here. God is taking a people who were formerly slaves and he's introducing them to a relationship with him. And in so doing, it requires some rules that he has to lay down because these rules are going to be the center of their ethic. It's going to be the center of who they are as a people. These rules are going to filter out all this Egyptian paganism and ancient Eastern paganism that they have adopted under the many, many years of being under Egyptian captivity. 
But I think it's so interesting when we talk about rules and relationships. Anybody here ever see that illustration of the, of the iceberg underwater? And you have about 10% of the iceberg, and then the rest of it, the 90% is submerged underwater? Well, it's interesting because when it comes to Deuteronomy and the relationship that God is establishing with his people, which really, in principle, isn't different than the relationship he's establishing with us under Christian rule, is that, yes, there are rules in this relationship, but the rules are only 10%, and they should hint at the other 90% of what the relationship should be about. But in Deuteronomy 6, he's uh, outlining that there are uh, rules, there are laws, there are statutes that you must keep. And then he comes to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them whenever you sit in your house and whenever you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. What is he getting at here? I want you to always be in a state of quality time with me. And being in a state of quality time with me, you will have a higher quality life. Why? Because I will be filling your life. God wants us to have quality life with him, and it's one of God's love languages. God wants us to always have him before us. You know, uh, many of us probably grew up in Christian homes. And you, could prob- you probably know those people, maybe your parents, maybe some friends, maybe some folks at church where you get to their house and the first thing you see is the doorstep and it talks about God or it's a scripture. And then you go into their house and they have a psalm here and a proverb there. <laughs> you look on their chest and they have a, a necklace that's a cross or earrings that say something. This is what God is talking about. I want you to always have me on your mind. This is quality life with God. This is quality time with God. And it's one way that we express our love for him when he's always here and he's always here. There's another one, acts of devotion. Chapman calls them acts of service. And what he means here, uh, he means helpful gestures that's seen as appreciation, that, that's, that's seen as care. Simple actions like cooking, cleaning, taking out the trash. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're, if, if, if you're married to somebody where this is their love language, it's going to take some effort now, y'all. All right? <laughs> it's going to take some effort. Quality time, uh, that's, that, you know, quality time, hanging out, okay, that's cool. But then you're talking about having to actually pick up around the house. <laughs> but acts of uh, service, according to Chapman, the idea of sharing responsibilities, that, that this is important to people who speak this love language, and it takes effort, it takes awareness, and these, this would be a love language where actions do speak louder than words, and they're actions that's done not, be, not uh, begrudgingly, uh, not out of complaint, because that would defeat the whole purpose, is doing it out of care and, and uh, love for your spouse. Well, when it comes to God, he speaks this kind of love language, and we can call it acts of devotion. In Hebrews 13, If we're familiar with the context, the Hebrew uh, writer, the Hebrews writer is writing to a group of Christians in Jerusalem, and many of them are losing their faith, returning back to the old Jewish system. They're returning back to the old sacrificial system. And the writer of this letter is having to 
stop that. He had, he's having to correct that. He's having to make sure that the Christians don't lose their faith. And he's showing how much better the Christian system is than that old covenant system that they were formerly under. But I think it's so interesting here in Hebrews 13, 15, because in this chapter, we come to this little section where he starts talking about sacrifices. And he mentions two kind of sacrifices that are attached to our devotion to God. Look what it says here. Through him, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his, his name. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The sacrifices that's under the new covenant are different than the sacrifices under the old covenant. There are three mentioned here. The first one has to do with praise on our lips to God, offered through Jesus, offered continually. And notice that they're also offered uh, in acknowledgement to his name. That is, others are understanding that we are praising this one, Jesus. The other sacrifice that we see here are actions towards others. And what does God say here? Through the inspired writer, doing good and sharing. It's so interesting, acts of devotion. If we want to express love to God through acts of devotion, it takes some effort on our part. It takes effort on our part to praise God. And the idea is not just merely saying words, it's really meaning what we say, which means taking a little bit out of us, our, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, and focusing it on Jesus. And not just that, it means looking out for others, doing right by others. And when they need our help, sharing with others. It's interesting. You look into the New Testament, you're going to see something. And it's a very, very powerful, my wife and I, we've, we've experienced it here when we came down here. And as some of y'all know, uh, we came into a house that had no, no AC. And it's hot down here. <laughs> it's hot down here in Texas. Um, but there was so much hospitality that, that was shown to us. James took us in. Clay uh, gave us a, a nice machine on top of a rug. I mean, and, and matter of fact, the first day we got here, we had so many of y'all that were willing to help us move in. We looked through Scripture, and we see this idea of Christian hospitality that really encompasses the idea of doing good to others and sharing with others. But by doing these things, by making these kind of sacrifices, we're actually expressing Love to God. We're communicating in one of God's love languages. Let's go to a third one. Words of praise. In Chapman's book, these are called words of affirmation. Speaking in such a way where somebody feels safe around us, somebody feels loved by us, somebody feels cared by us, it's not being rude, it's not uh, making insults, it's not making negative connotations, it's not being hypercritical, it's not making uh, hits below the belt, that goes completely against words of affirmation in those who express love in this way or who would love to receive love in this way. For these folks who have this as their primary love language, at times words do speak louder than actions. They mean something. I want to give a, a quick, I want to say something here because uh, I recently seen an excellent, an excellent example of this. Uh, not too long ago, I was able to participate in a meeting with the, with the ministers and also the elders. And um, it was so enjoyable. One, one, some of the greatest meetings I've ever had have been in the last month. 
the, the leaders here have been spiritual. They care a lot about the church. I think that is awesome. But during this particular meeting, James, I'm sorry, James, I know you're a tough guy, but I have to bring this out, all right? <laughs> James gets to talking about his son, Jay. And he says something that hit me like a ton of bricks, and it's going to stay with me. And I'm looking into James' eyes as he speaks, and uh, for drama's sake, let's say that they, his eyes were swelling up, okay, for drama's sake. And he says, you know, I'm so proud of my son to have a son who cares about spiritual things. And I said, you know what? You know how much I would love to hear those kind of words myself? Sons out here would love to hear their father say, man, my son cares about the church. And I love him for that. I'm proud of him. More daughters. My daughters care so much about how they present themselves before the Lord, how they carry themselves, how they look to the will of God. These are words of affirmation, and they mean something. Now, some of y'all know me, and uh, you could probably already guess that this is one of my highest love languages because I love to joke. <laughs> I love to play around, and the good thing is I get to hang around with some guys who are great at, at, <laughs> at joking around, I'm telling you, and they love each other. It's a very, very, very rare and unique situation. But these are words of affirmation, and when it comes to God, it's really no different. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, remember the context of the book. Paul is highlighting the church, and he's explaining what the church is. It's much more than an institution. It's much more than an organization. It's also an organism. It's also a family. It's also the body of Christ. It's all these different concepts that actually mean something important to our theological, the theological aspect of our faith. But look at what he says here in Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. He says, look carefully then how you walk, you Christians, how you walk, not as wise, but as, or not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence of God. It's so interesting because in this passage, he's talking about Christians living communally with the Spirit. What that means is that we live with God, living with others. We live with others, living with God. In this context, he's mentioning the Christian body. These are the people we live with. These are the people we commune with. These are the people with whom we have fellowship with, which extends into fellowship with God. And we don't need to sever that in the least. But he mentions this right here, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The word that I want to point out here is psalms. Praise to God. Words of affirmation to God. Where do I learn to speak to God? You know, we're constantly learning to speak to each other, right? I don't want to speak in a way that, that makes you upset, and I'm sure you don't want to speak to me in ways that make me upset. We're having to use some kind of social IQ to figure things out. Well, we need to have some kind of spiritual IQ to figure out how God wants us to talk to him. And if we go to Psalms, we learn a lot about how to speak to God, how to speak the way that God wants to be spoken to. Uh, there's a habit that I recently uh, started doing, and I want to share it with you. Maybe this might help you when it comes to this love language, which is when you, t when, when you have time, go to the Psalms and take five, ten minutes. You can find a short one and try to write that Psalm in your words. And then take the next few minutes to pray that to the Lord. 
These are words of affirmation to God. These are words of prayer, uh, words of praise to Lord. And it's his third love language. Let's go to the next one. And we have two more, two more left. Gift getting. According to Chapman, these are gifts that symbolize the fact that you're thinking about somebody. They're physical reminders that you care about somebody, <laughs> that you're thinking about them on a regular basis. And it's not, about, it's not necessarily about how much you spend, uh, but it's about why you're getting what you're getting and how you get what you're getting. There's, if you read the book, there's a common theme to that behind, uh, behind Chapman. There's a deeper meaning behind this. Now, I'm going to say this, y'all. My wife and I, we took Chapman's test, Five Love Languages. Y'all, this is about a one or a zero for me. All right, so Kia has it bad when it comes to getting gifts. <laughs> I am not the best at it. Uh, matter of fact, if you have a moment, you can speak to her sometime and ask her about Christmas two, three years ago. <laughs> I thought I was giving the best gifts in the world and, and about broke our bank, all right? <laughs> and then for Kia to wake up and say, there's nothing on here I even want. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a compromise that we've made, though, on my, uh, on my birthday and on Father's Day, because I'm just so terrible at this, y'all. I either, don't get, I, I either don't miss the mark or I think too deeply, you know. <laughs> But the compromise key now we've made is on my birthday and on Father's Day, we celebrate that with her as well. So on my birthday, we go get her a gift. We go get me a gift. And, uh, hey, Chris, you got to be up here, all right? You got to think up here. I'm trying to make this work, all right? Um, but, you know, when it comes to God, God wants gifts as well. And I want to take a little bit longer on this passage right here. Micah 6, if you would turn to Micah 6. Please turn to Micah 6. And I think it's so interesting that when we think about uh, when we think about gift giving to God, I suppose it's maybe not something that we think about often. You know, when we think about giving gifts, we think about Christmas. We think about these holidays. We think about birthdays where we are giving gifts to other people, and we are regularly speaking to God about getting gifts from him. But when's the last time we sat down and said, you know what? What gifts does my God want from me? Well, let's look at, let's look at Micah 6. Micah 6. Give me a minute to turn there. Micah 6. As Chris has mentioned in Wednesday class, Israel has rebelled and God is having to speak to Israel. And by the time we come to Micah 6, God is using the Micah prophet to bring about a case against Israel. And from verses verses, uh, 6 through 7, God is starting a trial with Israel. In verses 1 through 2, God actually begins his trial. Let's read verses 1 through 2, Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. What we see God doing here is opening a court case, and he's saying, get up. There is a serious allegation against Israel that's going to be presented in my courts. And who will be witness? The mountains, the hills, things that cannot be moved, that cannot be shaken, can't be played, can't be tricked. They're going to bear witness to the indictment. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. The Lord brings his accusation. He says, oh, my, my people, what have I done to you? What, how have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, O my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? And what about from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? What is God saying here in this passage? He's saying, what have I done to you? I've done nothing wrong to you, Israel. That's the first thing that I'm going to make mention in this trial. I've done nothing wrong to you. Not only have I not done anything wrong to you, what does he say from verses 4 through 5? I actually did good to you. Remember when you were a slave and oppressed and was crying out for deliverance? I provided. Remember, in fact, I even sent before you good people to help guide you in the way. And not just that, remember Balak and Balaam? How that Balak wanted to destroy you, and so they went to, so he went to Balaam, a false, uh, a, a corrupt prophet, and he wanted Balaam to curse you. But I would not let that happen. What did Balaam have to do, y'all? Balaam had to tell Bo, uh, Balak that in order to get God out of Israel's life, you have to send your women in there and let Israel mingle with your women. And that ended up ruining relationships between Israel and God. It caused issues. But let's look through verses 6 through 7, because we're going to hear Israel's response in verses 6 through 7. Israel says this. They just hear what God has said to them. And this is Israel's response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand uh, rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sins of my soul? What is, he, what is Israel saying in response to what God has said? God, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? Do you want more stuff? You want more rivers of oil for what you've done? Do you want me to give my firstborn for you? Lord, you're asking for too much. That's their response to God. And look at what God says. God says, I don't want the gifts of these rams. I don't want the gifts of the oils. I don't want the gift of your firstborn. I'm not asking a lot out of you. In fact, he has told you, oh man, what is good? What gifts he wants from you? And what does the Lord require of you but to what? To do justice, to treat people fairly and right, to love mercy, not just love, not, uh, loving, not giving people what they deserve, and to walk humbly with your God. Remember whose you are. God wants gifts from us. It's one of his love languages. Have we been giving God his gifts? Well, if not, I think it would be a good time to start doing it because God loves the gifts of these three things right here. Let's go to his final love language, spiritual touch. If you would, please turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. And this is going to be our last passage for this evening. 1 Corinthians 6. According to Chapman, physical touch, it isn't always about the marriage bed. Physical touch can be holding hands. It could be hugging. It could be cuddling. It could be all that mushy-gushy stuff. That's what physical touch is. Sometimes it's in private. Sometimes it's in public. And we understand that there's degrees uh, that's appropriate for each context. But this is what he means by physical touch. Um, but when we look at physical touch, 
there is an analogous version of that when it comes to God. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Kind of the context of what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We all know 1 Corinthians, that church was all over the place. <laughs> Every chapter is a new topic <laughs> that's getting discussed. They were everywhere. But we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul has, is building, he's coming to the conclusion of an argument that he's building. And if you read the first half of this chapter, he's dealing with a certain line of reasoning that really isn't that far off from how people think today. And essentially the reasoning that he's dealing with is this. There were Christians in Corinth who were thinking this. And this is their argument. You know, when you're hungry, what do you do? I mean, you eat, right? You eat. I mean, it, what do you do with food? Food goes into the belly. When you're hungry, you eat. Food is made for the belly. Well, you know, when the body has its urges, what do you do? You fulfill it. Ain't that what the body's made for? Just like food made for the body, these various desires, they're made for the body, right? So then let us fulfill them. Paul is responding to that, and he's saying, no, 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 no. Let's forget the validity of your reasoning, which isn't valid to begin with. Not only is it not valid, it's also not true, which completely makes an unsound argument. It's not true because just because something is made for something doesn't mean that that something is, is, is right to do at all times or in certain contexts. But he's coming to the conclusion and he's saying this, do you not know, after he has said, no, 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 no. In fact, if you think that way, okay, but know this, food and belly, they're going to be thrown into hell. So if you follow this line of reasoning and you allow your bodies to do whatever they want to do, it's going to be right there with the food and the belly. <laughs> and then he says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? On top of this, now that the argument's dealt with, don't you know that your, that your body is Christ's body? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. For every sin a person, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual morality uh, that a person commits is against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, etc., etc.? Your body isn't your own. But notice this passage right here. Notice what he says here, and it's vitally important. It's vitally important. Yeah, he says that the Holy Spirit indwells the, the temple, and that that temple is made up of the church. But before he gets there, he says this. You know, when you go out to these idol temples, and I believe that's what, what we're talking about, these pagan temples to find these pagan prostitutes, and y'all mingle with them, you're close. That's physical touch. You become one. In a same way, similarly, you can be as close with the Lord. As close as you can be physically with these prostitutes, you can be spiritually as close with the Lord. And the Lord wants you this close. And by being this close, you won't be that close in this context with these people. Spiritual touch is very important to God. In fact, when I think of us as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, do we, are we still in spiritual touch with God? If not, 
We need to correct that. I think we would agree. But if you're not a, a Christian, a member of the church, if you haven't believed God's word, repented of sins, and been baptized, immersed in water and spirit, then you've yet to be able to touch God spiritually. And we need to get you in that state. But as we come to the conclusion of our lesson, here are some questions that we can, that we can ask ourselves. Do we live for God? Remember Deuteronomy. Are we constantly having God before ourselves, before our families? Is he making up the essence of our home? Do we serve for God? Do we find ways to sacrifice for the Lord to participate in this church family? Yes, it takes something out of us, energy and time. But if I want to love God, then this needs to be a part of the language I express to him. Three, do we talk to God? Do we, do we wake up or stay up an extra 30 minutes, an extra 30 minutes, 20 minutes to give a prayer to the Lord, to speak with him, to spend time with him? You know, Jesus, there were times where he was worn out like a dog. He was worn out and he would wake up early in the morning and he doesn't even have a cell phone to wake him up. <laughs> he was doing what he needed to do to talk to God. Are we doing that? Four, do we give to God? Giving is so much more than money. In fact, giving money is consequential. It is is a consequence of all these other things. If I'm, giving a, if I'm giving to God what he wants for me to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him, by consequence, I'll give him my resources. Am I giving him these things, which are coming from my soul, from my spirit, from my heart, from my mind, the strength of my life, am I giving it to him? And lastly, do we hold on to God? I've already mentioned this. If I'm a Christian, and I've lost touch with God, I need to cling to him. You know, God loves when we hold his hand throughout life. That's what he wants. And it's needful for us. I, I got two boys, and you know, when I hold their hands, I can keep them from falling into potholes, you know. <laughs> and as y'all know, I got two knuckleheads running around, <laughs> full of energy. Well, y'all, in a spiritual sense, we can be knuckleheads at times. God not only loves this, but it's also beneficial for us. If we're, all, if we're not a Christian and we've yet to come into this kind of physical touch with God again by believing his word, repenting, that is changing our lives, giving it to him, and being immersed in water and the spirit, the, the, the spirit that comes with it, then we need to make that decision today. I again thank you for the opportunity as we come, uh, as we invite ev anyone down who wants to respond to this lesson, please go with God with me in prayer. Father, our friend, our God, you're a holy God. We accept you for who you are. We know that you are love. You want us to love, not only others, but to love you. And we know, Father, that you want love in particular ways. It's part of our covenant with you. And we ask, Father, that you would help us express to you the kind of love that you, that you enjoy, the kind of love that you want, and that we speak your love languages, Father. Help us to speak them and to speak them clearly, to understand you, to communicate it on a regular, daily basis. Always be our friend and our God as you have promised us. Bless us with grace, mercy, and every spiritual blessing as you have promised us. We trust you as our God and our Father. We love you, our Lord. In Christ's name, amen.